This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Baster by Jeffrey Eugenides, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1996. Plan B was more devious and inspired, less romantic, more solitary, sadder, but braver too. The story was chosen by Akhil Sharma, who is the author of two novels and the story collection A Life of Adventure and Delight, which was published last month. Hi, Akhil. Hi, Deborah. Now, the last time that you were on the podcast, you chose a story by Tobias Wolff. This time you've chosen Jeffrey Eugenides. Do you think that there's any consistency in your choices, or are you choosing for different reasons? The writing is enormously energetic in both of them. Uh, the way that the type of energy is different, but the intensity level is enormously high. And is that what most draws you into a short story? It is not what most draws me in, but it is something that can catch me and capture me. Mm-hmm. Once you read s- sentences like the ones in the story or in Tobias Wolf's, it's hard to get out of them. Mm-hmm. This story came out in 1996. Did you read it back then? Uh, I'm not sure when I read it, but not when it came out. It's interesting to read it now mm-hmm. because I think when I read it, it I read it much more as a comedy, mm-hmm. and now I read it as a tragedy. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you did come across it, was that the your first experience of Eugenides, or had you read him? No, I'd read uh, The Virgin Suicides before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, I feel that his uh, it's this is a very, very different style, and it's more of the sort of style that you would find in Middlesex, more of the style you would find in the marriage plot, in that the sentences are so polished, which, you know, the sentences in The Virgin Suicides were good, uh, but these are polished, and you're sort of aware of the polish as you're reading them. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're aware of the, of the writer behind the words? I mean, I'm a writer, so I'm always aware <laughs> of, of the writer behind the, the words. Yeah. More so here than I was in The Virgin Suicide. Mm-hmm. So to me, there is a big difference between that that novel and the other two novels and that novel and this short story. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that this is, in a sense, representative of his later work? I think so. I think this is closer to what became, what what is his voice now. Mm-hmm which is both comedic and and tragic. Yeah, yeah, in very funny and almost um constantly interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh very few paragraphs without several very interesting things in them. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Akil Sharma reading Baster by Jeffrey Eugenides. Baster The recipe came in the mail. Mix semen of three men. Stir vigorously. Fill turkey baster. Recline. Insert nozzle. Squeeze ingredients. One pinch stew Wadsworth. One pinch Jim Friesen. One pinch Wally Mars. There was no return address, but Thomasina knew who had sent it, Diane, her best friend and recently fertility specialist. Ever since Tomasina's latest catastrophic breakup, 
Diane had been promoting what they referred to as Plan B. Plan A they'd been working on for some time. It involved love and a wedding. They'd been working on Plan A for a good eight years, but in the final analysis, and this was Diane's whole point, Plan A had proved much too idealistic, so now they were giving Plan B a look. Plan B was more devious and inspired, less romantic, more solitary, sadder, but braver too. It stipulated borrowing a man with decent teeth, body, and brains, free of the major diseases, who was willing to heat himself up with private fantasies. They didn't have to include Tomasina in order to bring off the tiny sputter that was indispensable to the grand achievement of having a baby. Like twin Schwarzkopf's, the two friends noted how the field of battle had changed of late. The reduction in their artillery, they'd both just turned 40. The increased guerrilla tactics of the enemy. Men didn't even come out into the open anymore. And the complete dissolution of the code of honor. The last man who'd got Tomasina pregnant, not the boutique investment banker, the one before, the Alexander Technique instructor, hadn't even gone through the motions of proposing marriage. His idea of honor had been to split the cost of the abortion. There was no sense denying it. The finest soldiers had quit the field, joining the peace of marriage. What was left was a ragtag gang of adulterers and losers, hit-and-run types, village burners. Tomasina had to give up the idea of meeting someone she could spend her life with. Instead, she had to give birth to someone who would spend life with her. But it wasn't until she received the recipe that Tomasina realized she was desperate enough to go ahead. She knew it before she'd even stopped laughing. She knew it when she found herself thinking, Stu Wadsworth, I could maybe see, but Wally Mars? Tomasina, I repeat, like a ticking clock, was 40. She had pretty much everything she wanted in life. She had a great job as an assistant producer of the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. She had a terrific adult-sized apartment on Hudson Street. She had good looks, mostly intact. Her breasts weren't untouched by time, but they were holding their own. And she had new teeth. She had a set of gleaming new bonded teeth. They'd whistled at first, before she got used to them, but now they were fine. She had biceps. She had an IRA kicked up to $175,000. But she didn't have a baby. Not having a husband she could take. Not having a husband was, in some respects, preferable but she wanted a baby. After 35, the magazine said, a woman begins to have trouble conceiving. Tomasina couldn't believe it. Just when she got her head on straight, her body started falling apart. Nature didn't give a damn about her maturity level. Nature wanted her to marry her college boyfriend. In fact, from a purely reproductive standpoint, nature would have preferred that she marry her high school boyfriend. While Tomasina had been going on about her life, she hadn't noticed it, the eggs pitching themselves into oblivion, month by month. She saw it all now, while she canvassed for R-I-P-I-R-G in college. Her uterine walls had been thinning. While she got her journalism degree, her ovaries had cut estrogen production. And while she slept with as many men as she wanted, her fallopian tubes had begun to narrow, to clog. During her 20s, that extended period of American childhood, the time when, educated and employed, she could finally have some fun. Tomasina once had five orgasms with a cab driver named Ignacio Varanes while parked on Gavinsford Street. He had a bent, European-style penis and smelled like flan. 
Thomasina was 25 at the time. She wouldn't do it again, but she was glad she'd done it then, so as not to have regrets. But in eliminating some regrets, you create others. She'd only been in her 20s. She'd been playing around was all. But the 20s became the 30s, and a few failed relationships put you at 35, when one day you pick up Mirabella and read, after 35, a woman's fertility begins to decrease. With each year, the proportion of miscarriages and birth defects rise. It had risen for five years now. Thomasina was 40 years, one month, and 14 days old, and panicked, and sometimes not panicked, sometimes perfectly calm and accepting about the whole thing. She thought about them, the little children she never had. They were lined at the windows of a ghostly school bus, faces pressed against the glass, huge-eyed, moist-lashed. They looked out, calling, We understand. It wasn't the right time. We understand. We do. The bus shuddered away, and she saw the driver. He raised one bony hand to the gear shift, turning to Tomasina as his face split open in a smile. The magazine also said the miscarriages happened all the time, without a woman's even noticing. Tiny blastulas scraped against the womb's walls and, finding no purchase, hurtled downward through the plumbing, human and otherwise. Maybe they stayed alive in the toilet bowl for a few seconds, like goldfish. She didn't know, but with three abortions, one official miscarriage, and who knows how many unofficial ones, Thomasina's school bus was full. When she awoke at night, she saw it slowly pulling away from the curb, and she heard the noise of the children packed in their seats, that cry of children indistinguishable between laughter and scream. Everyone knows that men objectify women, but none of our sizing up of breasts and legs can compare with the cold-blooded calculation of a woman in the market for semen. Tamasina was a little taken aback by it herself, and yet she couldn't help it. Once she made her decision, she began to see men as walking spermatosa. At parties, over glasses of Barolo, soon to be giving it up, she drank like a fish. Tamasina examined the specimens who came out of the kitchen or loitered in the hallways or held forth from the armchairs, and sometimes her eyes misting, she felt that she could discern the quality of each man's genetic material. Some semen auras glowed with charity. Others were torn with enticing holes of savagery. Still others flickered and dimmed with substandard voltage. Thomasina could ascertain health by guy's smell or complexion. Once, to amuse Diane, she ordered every male party guest to stick out his tongue. The men had obliged, asking no questions. Men always oblige. Men like being objectified. They thought that their tongues were being inspected for nimbleness toward the prospect of oral abilities. Open up and say, ah. Tomasina kept commanding all night long, and the tongues unfurled for display. Some had yellow spots or irritated taste buds. Others were blue as spoiled beef. Some performed lewd acrobatics, flicking up and down or curling upward to reveal spikes, depending from their undersize, like the antenna of deep-sea fish. And then there were two or three that looked perfect, opalescent as oysters and enticingly plump. These were the tongues of the married men who had already donated their semen in abundance to the lucky women taxing the sofa cushions across the room. The wives and mothers who were nursing other complaints by now of insufficient sleep and stalled careers, complaints that to Tomasina were desperate wishes. At this point, I should introduce myself. I'm Wally Mars, I'm an old friend of Tomasina's. Actually, I'm an old boyfriend. We went out for three months and seven days in the spring of 1985. At the time, 
Most of Thomasina's friends were surprised that she was dating me. They said what she did when she saw my name on the ingredient list. They said, Wally Mars? I was considered too short. I'm only five feet four and not athletic enough. Thomasina loved me, though. She was crazy about me for a while. Some dark hook in our brains, which no one could see, linked us up. She used to sit across the table, tapping it and saying, what else? She liked to hear me talk. She still did. Every few weeks she called to invite me to lunch, and I always went. At the time all this happened, we made a date for a Friday. When I got to the restaurant, Thomasina was already there. I stood behind the hostess station for a moment, looking at her from a distance and getting ready. She was lounging back in her chair, sucking the life out of the first of the three cigarettes she allowed herself at lunch. Above her head, on a ledge, an enormous flower arrangement exploded into bloom. Have you noticed? Flowers have gone multicultural too. Not a single rose, tulip, or daffodil lifted its head from the vase. Instead, jungle flora erupted. Amazonian orchids, Sumatran flytraps. The jaws of one flytrap trembled, stimulated by Thomasina's perfume. Her hair was thrown back over her bare shoulders. She wasn't wearing a top. No, she was. It was flesh-colored and skin-tight. Thomasina doesn't exactly dress corporate, unless you could call a brothel a kind of corporation. What she has to display was on display. It was on display every morning for Dan Rather, who had a variety of nicknames for Thomasina, all relating to Tabasco sauce. Somehow, though, Thomasina got away with her chorus girl outfits. She toned them down with her maternal attributes, her homemade lasagna, her hugs and kisses, her cold remedies. At the table, I received both a hug and kiss. Hi, hun, she said, and pressed herself against me. Her face was all lit up. Her left ear, inches from my cheek, was a flaming pink. I could feel its heat. She pulled away and we looked at each other. So I said, big news? I'm going to do it, Wally. I'm going to have a baby. We sat down. Tomasina took a drag on her cigarette, then funneled her lips to the side, expelling smoke. I just figured. Fuck it, she said. I'm 40, I'm an adult, I can do this. I wasn't used to her new teeth. Every time she opened her mouth, it was like a flashbulb going off. They look good, though, her new teeth. I don't care what people think. People either get it or they don't. I'm not going to raise it all by myself. My sister is going to help, and Diane. You can babysit, too, Wally, if you want. Me? You can be an uncle. She reached across the table and squeezed my hand. I squeezed back. I hear you've got a list of candidates on a recipe, I said. What? Diane told me she sent you a recipe. Oh, that, she inhaled. Her cheeks hollowed out. And I was on it or something. Old boyfriends. Thomasina exhaled upwards. All my old boyfriends. Just then, the waiter arrived to take our drink order. Thomasina was still gazing up at her spreading smoke. Martini up, very dry, two olives, she said. Then she looked at the waiter. She kept looking. It's Friday, she explained. She ran her hand through her hair, flipping it back. The waiter smiled. I'll have a martini too, I said. The waiter turned and looked at me. His eyebrows rose, and then he turned back to Thomasina. He smiled again and went off. As soon as he was gone, Thomasina leaned across the table to whisper in my ear. I leaned to, our faces touched, and then she said, What about him? Who? Him. She indicated with her head. 
Across the restaurant, the waiter's tensed buns retreated, dipping and weaving. He's a waiter. I'm not going to marry him, Wally. I just want his sperm. Maybe he'll bring some out as a side dish. Tomasina sat back, stubbed out her cigarette. She pondered me from a distance, then reached for cigarette number two. Are you going to get all hostile again? I'm not being hostile. Yes, you are. You were hostile when I told you about this, and you're acting hostile now. I just don't know why you want to pick the waiter. She shrugged. He's cute. You can do better. Where? I don't know. A lot of places. I picked up my soup spoon. I saw my face in it, tiny and distorted. Go to a sperm bank. Get a Nobel Prize winner. I don't just want smart. Brains aren't everything. Tomasina squinted, sucking in smoke, then looked off dreamily. I want the whole package. I didn't say anything for a minute. I picked up my menu. I read the words, fricassee de la Perot, nine times. What was bothering me was this, the state of nature. It was becoming clear to me, clearer than ever, what my status was in the state of nature. It was low. It was somewhere around hyena. This wasn't the case as far as I knew back in civilization. I'm a cash, pragmatically speaking. I make a lot of money, for one thing. My IRA is pumped up to $254,000. But money doesn't count, apparently, in the selection of semen. The waiter's tight buns counted for more. You're against the idea, aren't you, Tomasina said. I'm not against it. I just think if you're going to have a baby, it's best if you do it with somebody else, who you're in love with. I looked up at her, and who loves you? That'd be great, but it's not happening. How do you know, I said. You might fall in love with somebody tomorrow. You might fall in love with somebody six months from now. I looked away, scratching my cheek. Maybe you've already met the love of your life and don't even know it. Then I looked back into her eyes, and then you realize it, and it's too late. There you are with some stranger's baby. Tomasina was shaking her head. I'm 40, Wally. I don't have much time. I'm 42, I said. What about me? She looked at me closely, as though detecting something in my tone then dismissed it with a wave. You're a man. You've got time. After lunch, I walked the streets. The restaurant's glass door launched me into the gathering Friday evening. It was 4.30 and already getting dark in the caverns of Manhattan. From a striped chimney buried in the asphalt, steam shot up into the air. A few tourists were standing around it, making low Swedish sounds, amazed by our volcanic streets. I stopped to watch the steam too, I was thinking about exhaust anyway, smoke and exhaust. That school bus of Tomasina's, looking out one window was my kid's face, our kids. We had been going out three months when Tomasina got pregnant. She went home to New Jersey to discuss it with her parents and returned three days later, having had an abortion. We broke up shortly after that, so I sometimes thought of him or her, my only actual snuffed-out offspring. I thought about him right then. What would the kid have looked like? Like me with buggy eyes and potato nose? Or like Tomasina? Like her, I decided. With any luck, the kid would look like her. For the next few weeks, I didn't hear anything more. I tried to put the whole subject out of my mind. But the city wouldn't let me. Instead, the city began filling with babies. I saw them in elevators and lobbies and out on the sidewalk. I saw them straight-jacketed into car seats, drooling and ranting. I saw babies in the park on leashes. I saw them on the subway, gazing at me with sweet, gummy eyes over the shoulders of Dominican nannies. 
New York was no place to be having babies. So why was everybody having them? Every fifth person on the street toted a pouch containing a bonneted larva. They looked like they needed to go back inside the womb. Mostly you saw them with their mothers. I always wondered who the fathers were. What did they look like? How big were they? Why did they have a kid and I didn't? One night I saw a whole Mexican family camping out in a subway car. Two small children tugged at the mother's sweatpants while the most recent arrival, a caterpillar wrapped in a leaf, suckled at the wineskin of her breast. And across from them, holding the bedding and the diaper bag, the progenitor sat with open legs. No more than 30, small, squat, paint-spattered, with the broad, flat face of an Aztec, an ancient face, a face of stone, passed down through the centuries into those overalls, this hurtling train, this moment. The invitation came five days later. It sat quietly in my mailbox amid bills and catalogs. I noticed Thomasina's return address and ripped the envelope open. On the front of the invitation, a champagne bottle foamed out the words, I'm getting pregnant. Inside, cheerful green type announced, on Saturday of April 13, come celebrate life. The date I learned afterward had been figured precisely. Thomasina had used a basal thermometer to determine her times of ovulation. Every morning before getting out of bed, she took her resting temperature and plotted the results on a graph. She also inspected her underpants on a daily basis. A clear albumony discharge meant that her egg had dropped. She had a calendar on the refrigerator studded with red stars. She was leaving nothing to chance. I thought of canceling. I toyed with fictitious business trips and tropical diseases. I didn't want to go. I didn't want there to be parties like this. I asked myself if I was jealous or just conservative and decided both. And then, of course, in the end, I did go. I went to keep from sitting at home thinking about it. Thomasina had lived in the same apartment for 11 years, but when I got there that night, it looked completely different. The familiar speckled pink carpeting, like a runner of olive loaf, led up from the lobby, past the same dying plant on the landing, to the yellow door that used to open to my key. The same mezuzah, forgotten by the previous tenant, was still tacked over the threshold. According to the brass marker, 2A, this was still the same high-priced one-bedroom I'd spent 98 consecutive nights in almost 10 years ago. But when I knocked and then pushed open the door, I didn't recognize it. The only light came from candles scattered across the living room. While my eyes adjusted, I groped my way along the wall to the closet. It was right where it used to be, and hung up my coat. There was a candle burning on a nearby chest, and taking a closer look, I began to get some idea of the direction Thomasina and Diane had gone with the party decorations. Though inhumanly large, the candle was nevertheless an exact replica of the male member in proud direction, the detailing almost hyper-realistic, right down to the tributaries of veins and the sandbar of the scrotum. The phallus's fiery tip illuminated two other objects on the table, a clay facsimile of an ancient Canaanite fertility goddess of the type sold at feminist bookstores and New Age emporiums, her womb domed, her breasts bursting, and a package of love incense bearing the silhouette of an entwined couple. I stood there as my pupils dilated. Slowly the room bodied forth. There were a lot of people, maybe as many as 75. It looked like a Halloween party. Women who all year secretly wanted to dress sexy had dressed sexy. 
They wore low-cut bunny tops or witchy gowns with slits up the side. Quite a few were stroking the candles provocatively or fooling around with the hot wax. But they weren't young. Nobody was young. The men looked the way men have generally looked for the past 20 years, uncomfortable yet agreeable. They looked like me. Champagne bottles were going off, just like on the invitation. After every pop, a woman would shout, Oops, I'm pregnant, and everyone would laugh. Then I did recognize something, the music. It was Jackson Brown. One of the things I used to find endearing about Thomasina was her antiquated and sentimental record collection. She still had it. I could remember dancing to this very album with her. Late one night, we just took off our clothes and started dancing all alone. It was one of those spontaneous living room dances you had at the beginning of a relationship. On a hemp rug, we twirled each other around, naked and graceless in secret, and it never happened again. I stood there, remembering, until someone came up from behind. Hey, Wally. I squinted. It was Diane. Just tell me, I said, that we don't have to watch. Relax, it's totally PG. Thomasine is going to do it later, after everybody's gone. I can't stay long, I said, looking around the room. You should see the baster we got. Four ninety-five on sale at Macy's basement. I'm meeting someone later for a drink. We got the donor cup there, too. We couldn't find anything with the lid, so we ended up getting this plastic toddler's cup. Roland already filled it up. Something was in my throat. I swallowed. Roland? He came early. We gave him a choice between a hustler and a penthouse. I'll be careful what I drink from the refrigerator. It isn't in the refrigerator. It's under the sink, in the bathroom. I was worried somebody would drink it. Don't you have to freeze it? We're using it in an hour. It keeps. I nodded for some reason. I was beginning to be able to see clearly now. I could see all the family photographs on the mantel. Thomasina and her dad, Thomasina and her mom, the whole Genovese clan up in an oak tree. And then I said, call me old-fashioned butt and trailed off. Relax, Wally, have some champagne. It's a party. The bar had a bartender. I waved off the champagne and asked for a glass of scotch, straight. While I waited, I scanned the room for Thomasina. Out loud, though pretty quietly, I said with bracing sarcasm, Roland. That was just the kind of name it would have to be, someone out of a medieval epic, the sperm of Roland. I was getting whatever enjoyment I could out of this when suddenly I heard a deep voice somewhere above me say, Were you talking to me? I looked up, not into the sun exactly, but into its anthropomorphic representation. He was both blonde and orange and large, and the candle behind him on the bookshelf lit up his mane like a halo. Have you met? I'm Roland de Marchelier. I'm Wally Mars, I said. I thought that might be you. Diane pointed you out to me. Everybody's pointing me out. I feel like some kind of prize hog, he said, smiling. My wife just informed me that we're leaving. I managed to negotiate for one more drink. You're married? Seven years. And she doesn't mind? Well, she didn't. Right now, I'm not so sure. What can I say about his face? It was open. It was a face used to being looked at, looked into without flinching. His skin was a healthy apricot color. His eyebrows, also apricot, were shaggy, like an old poet's. They saved his face from being too boyish. It was this face Thomasina had looked at. She looked at it and said, You're hired. My wife and I have two kids. We had trouble getting pregnant the first time, though, so we know how it can be. 
the anxiety and the timing and everything. Your wife must be a very open-minded woman, I said. Hulan narrowed his eyes, making a sincerity check. He wasn't stupid, obviously. So Masina had probably unearthed his SAT scores. Then he gave me the benefit of the doubt. She says she's flattered. I know I am. I used to go out with Tomasina, I said. We used to live together. Really? We're just friends now. It's good when that happens. She wasn't thinking about babies back when we went out, I said. That's how it goes. You think you have all the time in the world, then boom, you find you don't. Things might have been different, I said. Roland looked at me again, not sure how to take my comment, and then looked across the room. He smiled at someone and held up his drink. Then he was back to me. That didn't work. My wife wants to go. He set down his glass and turned to leave. Nice to meet you, Wally. Keep on plugging, I said, but he didn't hear me or pretended not to. I'd already finished my drink, so I got a refill. Then I went in search of Tomasina. I shouldered my way across the room and squeezed down the hall. I stood up straight, showing off my suit. A few women looked at me, then away. Tomasina's bedroom door was closed but I still felt entitled to open it. She was standing by the window, smoking and looking out. She didn't hear me come in, and I didn't say anything. I just stood there, looking at her. What kind of dress should a girl wear to her insemination party? Answer, the one Tomasina had on. This wasn't skimpy, technically. It began at her neck and ended at her ankles. Between those two points, however, an assortment of peepholes had been ingeniously razored into the fabric revealing a patch of thigh hair, a glazed hip bone there, up above the white side swell of a breast. It made you think of secret orifices and dark canals. I counted the shining patches of skin. I had two hearts, one up, one down, both pumping. And then I said, I just saw a secretariat. She swung around, she smiled, though not quite convincingly. Isn't he gorgeous? I still think you should have gone with Isaac Asimov. She came over and we kissed cheeks. I kissed hers anyway. Tomasina kissed mostly air. She kissed my semen aura. Diane says I should forget the baster and just sleep with him. He's married. They all are, she paused. You know what I mean. I made no sign that I did. What are you doing in here, I asked. She took two rapid puffs on her cigarette as though to fortify herself. Then she answered, freaking out. What's the matter? She covered her face with her hands. This is depressing, Wally. This isn't how I wanted to have a baby. I thought this party would make it fun, but it's just depressing. She dropped her hand and looked into my eyes. Do you think I'm crazy? You do, don't you? Her eyebrows went up, pleading. Did I tell you about Tomasina's freckle? She has this freckle on her lower lip like a piece of chocolate. Everybody's always trying to wipe it off. I don't think you're crazy, Tom, I said. You don't? No. Because I trust you, Wally. You're mean, so I trust you. What do you mean I'm mean? Not bad mean, good mean. I'm not crazy. You want to have a baby, it's natural. Suddenly, Tomasina leaned forward and rested her head on my chest. She had to lean down to do it. She closed her eyes and let out a long sigh. I put my hand on her back. My fingers found a peephole and I stroked her bare skin. In a warm, thoroughly grateful voice, she said, you get it, Wally. You totally get it. She stood up and smiled. She looked down at her dress, adjusting it so that her navel showed, and then took my arm. Come on, she said. Let's go back to the party. 
I didn't expect what happened next. When we came out, everybody cheered. Thomasina held on to my arm and we started waving to the crowd like a couple of royals. For a minute, I forgot about the purpose of the party. I just stood arm in arm with Thomasina and accepted the applause. When the cheers died down, I noticed that Jackson Brown was still playing. I leaned over and whispered to Thomasina, Remember dancing to this song? Did we dance to this? You don't remember? I've had this album forever. I've probably danced to it a thousand times. She broke off. She let go of my arm. My glass was empty again. Can I ask you something, Thomasina? What? Do you ever think about you and me? Wally, don't. She turned away and looked at the floor. After a moment, in a reedy, nervous voice, she said, I was really screwed up back then. I don't think I could have stayed with anybody. I nodded. I swallowed. I told myself not to say the next thing. I looked over at the fireplace as though it interested me, and then I said it. Do you ever think about our kid? The only sign that she'd heard me was a twitch next to her left eye. She took a deep breath, let it out. That was a long time ago. I know, it's just that when I see you going to all this trouble, I think it could be different sometimes. I don't think so, Wally. She picked a piece of lint off the shoulder of my jacket, frowning. Then she tossed it away. God, sometimes I wish I was Benazir Bhutto or something. You want to be Prime Minister of Pakistan? I want a nice, simple, arranged marriage. Then, after my husband and I sleep together, he can go off and play polo. You'd like that? Of course not. That would be horrible. A tress fell into her eyes, and she backhanded it into place. She looked around the room. Then she straightened up and said, I should mingle. I held up my glass. Be fruitful and multiply, I said, and Thomasina squeezed my arm and was gone. I stayed where I was, drinking from my empty glass to have something to do. I looked around the room for any women I hadn't met. There weren't any. Over at the bar, I switched to champagne. I had the bartender fill my glass three times. Her name was Julie, and she was majoring in art history at Columbia University. While I was standing there, Diane stepped into the middle of the room and clinked her glass. Other people followed, and the room got quiet. First of all, Diane began, Before we kick everyone out of here, I'd like to make a toast to tonight's oh-so-generous donor, Roland. We conducted a nationwide search, and let me tell you, the auditions were grueling. Everybody laughed. Somebody shouted, Roland left. He left? Well, we'll toast his semen. We've still got that. More laughter, a few drunken cheers. Some people, men and women both now, were picking up the candles and waving them around. And finally, Diane went on, Finally, I'd like to toast to our soon-to-be-expecting knock-on-wood mother. Her courage in seizing the means of production is an inspiration to us all. They were pulling Thomasina out onto the floor now. People were hooting. Thomasina's hair was falling down. She was flushed and smiling. I tapped Julie on the arm, extending my glass. Everyone was looking at Thomasina when I turned and slipped into the bathroom. After shutting the door, I did something I don't usually do. I stood and looked at myself in the mirror. I stopped doing that for any prolonged period at least 20 years ago. Staring into mirrors was best at around 13, but that night I did it again. In Thomasina's bathroom, where we had once showered and flossed together in that cheerful, brightly tiled grotto, I presented myself to myself. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking about nature. I was thinking about hyenas again. The hyena, I remembered, is a fierce predator. Hyenas even attacked lions on occasion. 
They aren't much look at hyenas, but they do okay for themselves. And so I lifted my glass. I lifted my glass and toasted myself, be fruitful and multiply. The cup was right where Diane had said it would be. Roland had placed it with priestly care on top of a bag of cotton balls. The toddler cup sat enthroned on a little cloud. I opened it and inspected his offering. It barely covered the bottom of the cup, a yellowish scum. It looked like rubber cement. It's terrible when you think about it. It's terrible that women need this stuff. It's so paltry. It must make them crazy, having everything they need to create life but this one meager leaven. I rinsed Roland's out under the faucet. Then I checked to see that the door was locked. I didn't want anyone to burst in on me. That was ten months ago, shortly after Thomasina got pregnant. She swelled to immense proportions. I was away on business when she gave birth in the care of a midwife at St. Vincent's. But I was back in time to receive the announcement. Thomasina Genovese proudly announces the birth of her son, Joseph Mario Genovese, on January 15, 1996, five pounds, three ounces. The small size alone was enough to clinch it. Nevertheless, bringing a Tiffany spoon to the little heir the other day, I settled the question as I looked into his crib. The potato nose, the buggy eyes. I'd waited ten years to see that face at the school bus window. Now that I did, I could only wave goodbye. That was Akhil Sharma, reading Baster by Jeffrey Eugenides. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1996 and will be included in his story collection, Fresh Complaint, which will be published by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux in October. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Akhil, um, Jeff Eugenides described Baster in an interview he did with The New Yorker. He said, The story is about an unattractive man who's in love with a beautiful woman. It deals comedically with the Darwinist question, is it better to be good-looking or clever? Another writer described it as a story about the tyranny of beauty. Do you think, do you agree that that's the theme of the story? No, no. I mean, I, I mean, I sort of, I mean, by the time you're in your 40s, you realize that you can be a pretty hideous man and still go out with very beautiful women. <laughs> and, and so the, I just don't think that's the case. I mean, the tyranny of beauty might apply to women, but it certainly doesn't apply to men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, it did not feel that way to me. It felt instead like missed opportunities, uh, that here were these two people who were very interested in each other at a certain point in their life and for various reasons were not able to sustain their relationship. 
And so there was a period of almost 10 years of loss of not being with each other. That is what stood out for me. You know, all these things that are occurring are presented as, as comedy, but they're also torture. Mm-hmm. You know, if you speed up things, if you, the angle that you approach things with can turn ordinary suffering into comedy. And that's what this story feels like. And when, when I, each time I've read it again, I felt the enormous anguish inside the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I'm in my 40s now, and I know many men and women who are in this situation or who have been in this situation. Of wanting to be parents. Of wanting to be parents, of uh, seeking sperm, you know, mm-hmm. um, and becoming single parents, you know, mm-hmm. these, sort of, these sort of things. Uh, talking in, about miscarriages, about abortions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of this feels very real. Yeah. You mentioned that there's 10 years of loss between these two people because their relationship didn't work. When you read how they each describe the relationship or remember it, it's quite radically different that, that Wally has this sense of uh, there having been a deep connection between them, this sort of dark hook between them, and, and that Thomasina was crazy about him. And then she says, well, I was just really screwed up at that time. So, you know, I did those things with a, with a thousand different people. Who do, who do you think's remembering correctly? Oh, she doesn't say that I did those things with a thousand different people. She says that I danced to that yeah. album a thousand times. Yeah. You also wonder in a moment like this whether it isn't kindness to herself and to him by trying to push him away. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how I read it. I certainly feel that the relationship must be quite meaningful if they're seeing each other so regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, that also stood out to me. The relationship might be different when one is recalling it, but I one can have a relationship where one feels very similarly inside the relationship, but then when you're recalling it, you're recalling it in different ways. So, for example, if she's had a number of intense relationships, she can recall it as as somebody saying, you know, I was crazy, I, I did these things, you know, I'm sorry. Or, whereas when she was in the relationship, it could have been very passionate for her, and I can imagine it being passionate again. Do you think that that physical attractiveness is the reason she doesn't want Wally Mars to be the, the sperm donor? I didn't get that. That wasn't why, what I... Why do you think she doesn't want him? Because the relationship is old enough that now she can say, okay, if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna invest in raising a child, let me just find the best sperm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, n- she might like him, but she's no longer in love with him. And so now it becomes a very practical sort of uh, decision. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the child she would have with Roland's sperm would be more to her liking than the child she'd have with Wally's? No, because you know, one, <laughs> One falls in love with the child, you know? One falls in love with their, with their funny-looking kid. <laughs> I asked Jeff about the story before coming to, to tape the podcast, and I asked him if, if people read it as a kind of feminist story at the time, if, it, if you know, this was seen as Thomasina sort of empowering herself in a, in a bad situation. And... And he said, well, the idea of a woman taking charge of her reproductive rights might have pleased some readers, but the story is too comic, I think, to have 
to have been considered feminist and maybe too provocative or, or gross as well. But I wonder if you think of Thomasina as empowered in the story or if it's really the opposite. You know, it's plan B. Yeah. And so the fact that she is doing her best is great, you know, mm-hmm. but um, it's hard to see somebody empowered when they're responding to a bad situation. Uh, it's also hard to somebody who has uh, sex with a taxi driver parked on the street. It's hard to take that person's decisions as fully brave. Mm-hmm. You know, though she's no longer that person. That was her her youth. She it's fifteen years later. Yeah. You know, how much has she changed in 15 years? I mean, you you see all the failed relationships, and certainly two people are inside the relationship, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't have her part in what occurred. So in in all of these things, I mean, it feels feminist in that her decisions are treated respectful, respectfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, you know, it's like how do you interpret Taming of the Shrew in a feminist way? I mean, you interpret it by saying that, that you know, Shakespeare was a jerk, <laughs> right? I mean, that seems like an appropriate feminist interpretation of it. To me, she is being given a choice. She's been being presented in her in what is sort of a realistic way. I mean, there are a lot of uh, people who are this sort of crackpots. I mean, I know many uh, people who've done all sorts of things like this. To the extent that the that the woman is being treated respectfully, and I she and I think she is, then the book is a the story is a feminist story. Mm-hmm. Why do you think um, Eugenides waits till about a quarter of the way into the story to tell us who's who's narrating? I wondered about that myself. You know, it's similar to... I remember that in my story, uh, we didn't like him. I, I begin with a, with a we, and then I wait a couple of paragraphs to switch into first person. And I wondered whether it was simply convenience. You know, that uh, oftentimes what we're, when we write, what we're interested in simply getting the reader interested, and we are going to then switch into something... Uh, when we need a certain amount of uh, through line, we can switch to a first person. And I wonder if it was as simple as that. You know, it's a little bit like you wonder what's the deep logic behind the ending of um, A Hero for Our Times. And there is, you know, who knows? Maybe it was simply that, oh, this was convenient. Mm-hmm. And so you just do it that way. And you're not looking for for uh, symmetry. Yeah, it's not that you feel tricked, but you you read the first few pages thinking you're getting an omniscient narrator's yeah. voice or perhaps a sort of third-person internal monologue from, from Thomasina. And then there's the aha moment when, in fact, you discover you're, you're actually in the mind of uh, a somewhat spurned former boyfriend. Does it change how you read? Uh, when I read the first few pages... To me, they don't read like Wally Mars. Mm. You know, they read much more like a true third person. Uh, I mean, one could make the argument that they are, but having read it several times, it would be an argument that I would have to work at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not how I read it. I mean, I read it much more sort of the razzle-dazzle of writing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what do you think of what Wally does at the end? It's immoral. I mean, it certainly is deeply, deeply immoral, you know, to, to take away this woman's choice. Yeah. If one were to take it seriously, it would be a horror. Why do you think he does it? Is it out of love or sort of longing to, to have that child they didn't have? Or is it revenge because they didn't have that child? I didn't get a sense of malice, you know, that would lead to revenge. I didn't get that. Because we're in first person, we're biased to think of it as love. But obviously this can't be love. You know, at a certain point with, with decisions this serious, you know, love is sort of accepting the other person's choice. So it isn't that. But the way that the story is set up, it's, it is set up, I believe, so that we read it as love or some sort of longing because the actual decision is, uh, the weight of the decision is diminished. In a sense, you know, you finish the story and you think, well, Wally had the, he got the last laugh here, perhaps in response to, to having been rejected by her. But he, he doesn't really get the last laugh because he's not ever going to be the father to this child. He, he sees it and says all he can do is wave goodbye. In Eugenity's description, it's a, it's a kind of comic look at Darwinism. Do you see that? Again, my, my personal, what I see around me is you can be a relatively hideous man and still go out with very beautiful women. I mean, that I find constant. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of Darwinism, especially with one, if one person is make, makes good money, et cetera, it doesn't, it doesn't read like Darwinism. I know that the metaphor exists within the story, but I don't read it that way. I think of it as a, uh, a metaphor that organizes things, uh, but I don't, I don't read it. I don't read the story in that way. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately for you, you said when you first read it, it was a comedy and now it's a tragedy. Yeah. Do you think both of, both of those things are intentional or there in the voice? Yeah, both of those things are, are present in the story. Both things are, I feel, are very deliberate. And I think like any very, very, very good story, uh, one can move inside the story. Mm -hmm. And so one can see it from so many different angles. And like I, I think you can see it quite clearly. The feminist interpretation could be Thomasina's choice, right? And another feminist interpretation could be that, holy cow, this is a story about a rape. Uh, both are equally valid. Mm -hmm. Or one could make them equally valid. You know, the sleight of hand of switching from third person into first person, one can you know, that sleight of hand, one can make the argument, oh, if you really want to go way out there, one could make the argument that this, the feminist interpretation is, here's this guy taking over her voice. I mean, I, I don't tend to read stories that way. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's just sort of a remarkable story, remarkably funny and remarkably sad. You talked about earlier about the intensity of the writing and how much there is in, in each paragraph. What are, what are you seeing in there? Um, there is um, a constant flow of humor, of surprising details, of a mind that can move around and bring in interesting connections. So, for example, when the vase of flowers is described and how they say, oh, it's this multi, even here it's multicultural. Yeah. So this is endless thing. It's also sort of interesting to see a real pers person mention it, like Dan Rather, Right. <laughs> you know, that's not, uh, that's not something people do that 
tend not to do that much in fiction mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, it can tear the, the fabric of fiction when you have a real person present. Mm-hmm. And here, it doesn't. It, the, somehow the artificiality of the narrative is enhanced by mentioning this, uh, this real person and that artificiality allows the energy to be greater. So in hundreds of little things are, are fantastic. Even the, I mean, even the minor description of the smer- sperm at the bottom of the cup looking like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Uh, <laughs> I like stories that are radically different from anything that I can write. Like, I don't know if I could write sentences that are this quick. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's just fantastic to read it. Yeah. There are a lot of, you, you know, you mentioned Dan Rather and, and, the flower arrangement and so on. I feel as though there there are a lot of um, specific markers of the time period mm-hmm. in this story, um, even down to the fact that Thomasina is smoking in a restaurant. Yeah. You know, which wouldn't have seemed strange in '95 when it was written, but now feels so very much part of of 20 years ago. Do you think that that makes the story feel dated, or do you think it's it's still sort of timeless? I mean. This is stuff that my friends are going through right now. Yeah. And so I notice the details, the the smoking, et cetera, but it felt very current. Like it mm-hmm. felt like I could get a call from a friend who would be talking about this. Uh, so it doesn't feel dated at all. It's sort of shocking how 22 years later it feels like, holy cow, this is occurring right now. Right. Perhaps now there would be easier access to, to good sperm. Yeah. <laughs> some, in some ways, the technology has changed. Yeah. The availability has changed. I tend to begin with the idea of what is the author's talent and then think that the talent finds and shapes the subject matter that suits it. It isn't, you know, that the, sub, you know, the subject matter, all subject matter already exists. And it's really the shaping intelligence that, that, is, uh, that is determinative. And so for me, the... The shaping intelligence is very smart, very playful, very interested in holding the reader. That need to hold the reader oftentimes uh, moves towards humor because it's such a, a great way to to grab the audience. And that the that the intelligence is also always connected to very deep, painful things. You know, Middlesex is very is connected to very painful things. You know, the marriage plot how to hold together very funny and very sad creates a particular voice. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to do? You, you sometimes do that in your own fiction. I don't think of myself as a funny writer, uh, although I write about weird people. I think Eugenides, if you were to ask him uh, if he has a gift for comedy, I think he would probably say that he does, uh, but that it requires work. Uh, because there's um, these sort of sentences don't just sort of happen. You know, <laughs> they're, they're things that have been really polished and thought through. I don't think it's easy what he does. I think it's an enormous amount of work. Uh, but I think another writer could do the same amount of work and would not come up with anything as close to good as this is. <laughs> so the story's lived in your memory. Yes. What's interesting is to read it again to realize that's even better than I remembered it uh, and how much darker it is, how much sadder it is. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Akil. Thank you. Jeffrey Eugenides is the author of three novels, The Virgin Suicides, Middlesex, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2003, and The Marriage Plot. His first story collection, Fresh Complaint, will be published in October. Akhil Sharma has published two novels, An Obedient Father and Family Life, which won the 2016 International Dublin Literary Award. Last month, he put out his first story collection, A Life of Adventure and Delight. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store, including one in which Akhil Sharma reads a story by Tobias Wolf. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.